The thing that I've found, the more people that I work with, the more successful people that I work with, more millionaires and billionaires that I know, the more celebrities that I know, the thing that I'm learning is there's nothing at the top of the rope. They're all climbing this rope to destination. I don't know what, because when they get there, they want to climb to something else. That's Danny Wallace, former serial self-saboteur and now fearless public speaking coach, motivational speaker and founder of the Queen Bee Movement. She believes that our stories are our gift to the world and one of the best ways to do this is to be speaking about it on as many platforms as you are able. In this episode of Your Truth Shared, we talk about her journey from breaking the cycle of domestic violence to helping people show up, wise up and rise up. I'm Fanola Howard, intuitive marketer, your host and founder of How Great Marketing Works. I believe that every business has a story to tell because that's how the market decides whether to buy or not. And your story has to resonate with who you are and with the people you want to serve. And this podcast is about helping you reach the market in a way that feels right to you. So if you're an entrepreneur with a dream you want to make real, then this is the podcast for you because great marketing is your truth shared. I recently experienced this beautiful force, not to be reckoned with, but to be experienced because she's such a big, gentle soul that has so much to teach that I really wanted to bring her on. So please welcome Danny Wallace, the Queen Bee. <laughs> oh, I'm so Honestly, if I could just have you walk around with me and like introduce me into rooms forever, I will be the happiest person in the world. Oh, but I have to say, I we have only just met very, very briefly. And I took part in um, a, a webinar series by Lisa Johnson recently. Wonderful Lisa Johnson. And you just blew me away. It was just like, it just kept coming. And I was writing and writing and writing. And I just went, we've got to share you. Oh, thank you so much. Honestly, it's such an honour to be a part of your podcast. I'm, I'm absolutely oh. thrilled. So it's a mutual appreciation situation oh. today. Thank you kindly. Thank you kindly. And I love this, this, this thing about you that, and we're going to share your story because you're so uh, generous and you're going to share this story. And it's a really powerful story, but it's, a, story, a hard story that goes from homelessness to like domestic violence, homelessness to this international speaking coach that makes such a difference in the world and have your own flyaway foundation. And I just want to share how you got from there, from where you were to where you are now, because it's powerful and it's inspiring. And I've white knuckled it the entire way there for Nola. I'm holding off a dear life still. <laughs> <laughs> but there's white knuckling for everyone. Will you share a little bit of that story from the beginning? Like, because it's hard. Yeah. Um, and, for, and for anyone that's listening along, uh, I when I share this story, I don't do it with the intention to trigger anybody or to, to kind of traumatise yes. anybody. When I tell my story, it's always from a place of hope. It's always from a place of, from there, I created everything that I've created and using my opportunity to survive to then serve has been a real a real reckoning that I've had with myself and and therefore with the world of business. So I grew up on the council estates of Preston. 
um, which is in the, for our, anybody that's listening internationally, these are the sort of the poorer areas of, um, of England. And my family, intrinsically, um, generationally, uh, had always experienced, particularly the women in our family, had experienced abuse, uh, domestic violence, uh, addiction, poor quality relationships, high expectations of them to be uh, not only nurturer but provider. So really skewed, um, really skewed sort of dynamics as a as a child growing up is is kind of what I was handed. It was a bit of a shitty stick uh, for a child to kind of witness growing up this sort of addiction, this sort of cycle of domestic abuse. And this is everybody from my parents through to my nana and granddad through to my aunties, uncles, friends even. Uh, so that informed a lot of the decisions that I made around my intimate partner relationships and even friendship relationships as I got older. And what I found was because our house was kind of a revolving door of people come to live with me, even as the youngest, I really sought external validation. And I think this is the the curse of the youngest is that often we, you know, we shout the loudest or we're the performers. But actually what I found was that I had to read a room from very, very early on. And in reading a room meant that I was able to adjust and alter my behavior in order to help people in the room. I didn't realize that that was training for essentially what I have gone on to create, but it really was. That was where the, the sort of the, the cornerstones were forged. Um, so I essentially, when I was 16, ran away with a circus. Uh, I went to sing <laughs> all over the world. <laughs> I found that I could sing. I, was, I found that, you know, in seeking this sort of external validation, I was really blessed with an ability to sing. And so that became my escape as I got older and I was sort of 16, 17. I was in a position whereby I uh, found or sought out opportunities to travel. And really what I was doing, I was running away from the chaos to create mm. my own chaos in the world, sort yeah. of Hurricane Danny. Um, and for the family that were around me, for my community that were around me, although it was quite glamorous or Danielle as a singer, um, it, it wasn't a proper job. And that sort of, again... I, I found me seeking this sort of validation outside of myself. They thought, so what is proper? What is right? What should I be doing as an intelligent person who's got, you know, gifted talent and what have you? What should I be doing? And, and the answer was, in the back of my mind, to find a husband, have children, buy a house, have a career, do all these sort of, in inverted commas, normal things. Yeah. These sort of cookie cutter things that actually didn't really ever feel like they were for me. So I found mm. myself in a position whereby I was traveling all over the world. I came back to the UK, got a job in an office during the rise of the, uh, during the rise of the contact center, which was essentially early 2000s, mm. was the factory of our time, right? Mm. And I was very lucky that I got talent managed. I'd met somebody at the time who just wasn't ready for a relationship. Essentially got a proper job, bought a house, had a baby, got engaged, was jilted at the altar because this guy wasn't ready. And that left me feeling really vulnerable. That's a really potted version of, of what happened around that time. Essentially, I had this really great life happening on top. It looked great to the outside world. I had it together. I was this clever, articulate person. Then underneath, actually, because of the really shaky bedrock on which all of my sort of relationship foundations were built, it meant that it crumbled very, very easily. Um, I tried to force it. I tried to create this sort of perfect idea of a life. And actually that wasn't the case whatsoever. And so in that vulnerability, found myself in a position 
where I was in a really toxic relationship and that relationship eventually turned violent and I had to escape that relationship with my two children under the age of three at the time and we became homeless. And I swore that if ever I was to survive that situation, I'd dedicate the rest of my life to helping people who might be from either that situation or another marginalized situation to take up space in the world. And that's what happened. So I um, decided that life wasn't going to continue to happen to me. I was going to happen to life. And uh, so I started to really make empowered decisions over what I was going to do instead of what I was afraid of or what I was running from. And it was in there that... But there's an interesting thing when we had this discussion that your kids... There's two parts that were really interesting to me. One was, because you just shared one part, is which is you wanted to help people like this for the rest of your life. But you also made a statement. You said you remembered the moment when you were 13 or 14 saying to your sister, one day we'll help people. Like at 13 or 14. I remember being sat with my sister in our room and it was in the aftermath of a particularly explosive drink fueled argument between my parents. And it was, my, my dad was the drinker and my mum sort of kind of mopped up around him. And I remember saying to Gemma, our kids, Gemma's my sister, by the way, our kids won't experience this. There's no way that we look at our cousins and our cousins have experienced this. Our aunties and our uncles have experienced this. And our grandparents have experienced this. And it was, we really decided quite early on that if there was this oncoming train of generational rubbish that was going to hit us, it was going to stop with us. And we made that decision really early on. So even though I found myself in a position where I was experiencing it, that was a real wake up call in that moment where I thought that I couldn't make any good decisions. Actually, I was perpetuating it, that I had to make that decision then, right? No, it has to stop. This is happening now. It's happening to me and my children are in tow. And I sworn with my sister, this wasn't going to happen. So yeah, it was in, in that sort of awareness, that self-awareness, that realization point. And it's from there that, you know, my sister entered into social care. She was working in social care and I ended up learning about business. And now we've come together with the Flying Away Foundation. And was it like, was it a self-awareness that, you know, because there's so much talk about self-awareness and a lot of work that we do on consciousness, self-awareness, you know, because when we're more self-aware, we make better choices. But was that the desperateness of self-awareness, the moment of it, or was it a deeper self-awareness that? Yeah, I absolutely. I think there's a two, there's a two, there's a sort of a dual sort of self-awareness going on. So as somebody who works in performance all the time, mm. my job is to kind of look at myself, look at my actions and see what those actions are going to beget, see what the, the you yeah. know, what fruit they're going to bear. And I have to think about that all the time. Like that's the whole reading the room thing, right? Yes. But I wasn't applying any of that to myself. So I was in the moment at work, in this workspace, learning all sorts of things about personality profile and I understand my personality and all of that, but I wasn't actually applying mm. any of what I knew about taking ownership of that to my actual life. So it was all well and good. That, that lots of people do this in the entrepreneurial space. They'll do like disc or insights or, you know, have all sorts of uh, letters after the name and all, oh, what are you, an INF, INFJ or whatever it is, mm. you know. But actually, it's all well a good understanding that, but how do you apply it? And I wasn't doing. So 
there was that. And then in the moment where I kind of decided, and I, and I was traveling to and from London at the time, we were sofa surfing um, and I tucked my kids into bed uh, as I was about to set back off to London for another couple of days at work. Um, and I didn't know if I was kissing them goodbye or goodnight. I, I didn't know if that was me driving off into the sunset or around a lamppost or one or the other. And it, they're in the car and it was raining and the windscreen wipers were going. And I remember just thinking, I, this can't be it. And I think that was a different level of self-awareness. Like, if this can't be it, then what? What are the choices that I am going to have to make that are going to enable me to get out of this? Because I've made a series of choices to get me here. And I think the self-awareness here was the recognition that there were decisions to be made that were mine and mine alone. And that actually gave me a lot of power back. So then I'm, I'm always, I was always then from then that point onwards thinking ahead of myself, if I do this, what will happen? And then almost in the reverse of that. So if there is a future me out there who is wildly successful and they're traveling the world and the kids are happy and they're in a happy relationship, what decisions have they made in order to get there? And there's that sort of extended version of self-awareness. That's that intrinsic one that allows us to make decisions in the moment, but also that one that allows us to step towards that future version of ourselves that we want. And that really does take a little bit of standing back sometimes and, and reflecting. And I think like that's a really important message because, I mean, I did this exercise several years, a long time ago, right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what happened. I remember I shut off the TV and I shut off, I turned everything off for six months, right? So that I I just, it could have been 10 years ago. I can't remember. I think it was longer. And I remember, I remember just not being part of the world, right? So mm -hmm. shutting all media down for six months. That's a frightening prospect for so many people. It's so brave sometimes you just do it, you know. And then I remember that my first uh, going out into the world was I was meeting a friend and we were going to the movies. <laughs> and I sat in the seat of going to the movies and it was a great, um, I can't think it was one that I went to see, but I was gobsmacked by the, and overwhelmed by the ads because I hadn't seen ads for six months. And the ads were, everything was about escape, escape, you know, uh, a, you know, a PlayStation or, you know, an anti-drug thing was everything was about the world was about teaching us that the norm was about escape. And I think that and it really, really struck me. And it's the complete opposite of what you're saying, that when we're sometimes I feel that we live in a world that teaches us it's better to escape than to do what you did. Right. And and escape looked like different things for me in the run-up to that. So it looked like drinking too much. It looked like yeah. drugs in certain situations. It looked like eating or, or over, you know, binge eating in certain situations. And that and and the and the food thing carried on right up until well even even in the last 12 months. Um without realizing it because you take away the vice of the vice you know well I'm not drinking too much and I'm not taking drugs I'm not doing anything bad you know I have a healthy you know I have a healthy sex life like there's no vices there and actually the vice was food and that was where I was finding my comfort and understanding as well as somebody who is neurodivergent so I've got ADHD that understanding that my brain seeks out dopamine yeah. And so when I was in relationships that were toxic, it was the hit of dopamine through that 
the you know the love bombing or it was through the hit of dopamine through cocaine or it was the the hit of dopamine for, or even the numbing that yeah. w- that a couple of bottles of red wine brought once the kids were in bed. And actually, w- it was when I stopped trying to escape myself that really great things started to happen. Was it painful? Yes. Is it, there was a lot of blame and a lot of shame that I carried with myself for a long time and it still comes back in waves. You know, I was writing checks for my children that now I'm cashing. So, you know, with their biological fathers, for example, and there's a lot of sort of shame that sits around that, but actually allowing myself to face that and not escape from it allows me to work through it. And I'm much healthier, both in body and in mind on the other side of that. Yeah, bravo. Oh, <laughs> yeah, but that's you. such hard work. It's such hard work. And it's also such hard work to, to be so open about it. I think it was harder being homeless. I think it was harder being, you know, losing everything. Now it's not hard. I do the work. Yes, it's hard. But I think it, I think the, where I was was harder. Yeah. Yeah. So it must be easy now. Yeah. Right. Yeah, well, I've lost everything now, so I'm not scared of myself anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because it's and, and all of this again, this is our trend. And even I just had this conversation last week with somebody about you know, looking inside, you know, the answer is within us. It sounds really kind of trite and silly, you know, it seems so silly to say it, but it it's the truth of it. It feels glib when you say it, but I think that, you know, there's a reason why cliche is there. It's because there's truth in it. You know, we can't, we can't escape some of these facts and the reason why they work and the reason why people say these things time and time again is because actually when you apply them, it works. It just does. I like that as a core message from you of that idea of moving from theoretical looking at things to actually pragmatically applying it. It's really, I really like that. One of the things I asked you when we had our initial chat was about, tell me why And I asked you in this way, why have you got this? Why did you create this persona? This is what I asked you. Why did you create this persona, the Queen Bee? And I'd love you to share your answer. And I clutched my pearls, didn't I, Finola? Because it isn't (laughs) anything to do with me. It's not actually a persona. So the phrase, I am the Queen Bee, is a reclamation statement. It is actually nothing to do with me declaring myself royalty. What it is, it, the phrase and the reason why I've called my business I am the Queen Bee and the reason why, you know, it's the Queen Bee Danny is because if somebody scrappy from the Council Estates of Preston can rock up anywhere, I can, I could turn up at a Royal Garden party or I could turn up at a community hall and still declare myself royalty, then hopefully somebody else will see that audacity and see some of that in themselves. And hopefully they will take up space in the world a little bit differently. If they can see someone like me creating what I create and having the audacity to turn up and say, you know, my name's Danny Wallace and I'm the Queen Bee. I know it's audacious, but if it means that somebody in that room then sees a little spark of that within themselves and wants to reclaim that for themselves as well, then I am made up. So I was really annoyed that the Queen, God rest her soul, was born the Queen and I was born in Preston. And she was born into this, you know, sort of very rich world and and what have you. And I wasn't. And then I had to think, like, we're all human beings. And things like health, wealth, however you look at it, 
friendships, good relationships with yourself, all of these things. These are our birthrights. These are our peace. These Mm. are our basic birthrights. And some of us have to be a little bit more tenacious about seeking out those birthrights. And don't get me wrong, every level has different devils and people born into different situations will experience different hardships and it's all subjective. But when we, when I say I am the queen bee or the king bee or the sovereign bee, however you identify, you're reclaiming what is yours for you. And it might have been taken away in the first instance. Like me, for example, it was relationships. Like good relationships weren't for people like me. I didn't know how to have one. I didn't have a benchmark. I didn't have a role model for one. So I have to reclaim that as a birthright by learning through other examples. I have to seek out good examples of good relationships so that then I can set my own benchmark. I can create my own boundaries. And that's what I am the queen bee is all about. It's absolutely nothing to do with me sort of holding myself in a higher regard of anybody else. It's actually everybody is invited to hold themselves in a higher regard. Mm, I love that. And I love your use of the word audacious. It's such an audacious word. It's a delicious word. Yes, I love it. Because you inspire us to be audacious too. It's just beautiful. And we're not taught to be audacious, Finola. We're not like, oh, how very dare you be audacious. Oh, the audacity. I'm like, yes, give me some audacity. Like, I want to take up space in the world. I don't want to be small. I am sick of being told by social media insidiously from the second that I was born that everything I do has to be small. I've got to make myself small. Little girls should be seen and not heard. Be thinner, pluck your hair, do all these things. No, thank you. I will make those decisions if I want to make those decisions, but you're not going to enforce them on me and having the audacity to say, no, thank you. I want to choose something different for myself is a real empowering situation to be in. And isn't it, it's a better word than brave. Right. Yeah. Brave, brave makes me feel like. Struggling. Something was taken (laughs) away from, yeah. Yeah. Something was taken away from me in the beginning bit. Audacious just means I'm having it. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Let's kind of fast track to where you are now, because you have this great statement, which is closed mouths don't get fed. Yeah. And that's just, you know, it's just so kind of, that's it, you know, and you're kind of, because you, it's a truth that just hits deep. I'm so short, so fantastic. Um, And one of the things that struck me when, I first saw you in action was this kind of wonderful combination of um, smart, intuitive. It's and and that real pragmatism of it and that insight into it, but also that thing of lifting other people up. And you do that in your everyday life now. And let's talk about that in a second. But yeah, let's talk about that. I figure that we all do well when we all do well. Like there has been a a system that has been placed around us over just a few hundred years that encourages the tearing down of one another for the betterment of oneself. And I find that a slow track, narrow-minded way of viewing success. Now, if we look at success in having had a, a life well lived, and that will mean something to every single person differently in this world, but a life, we look at a life well-lived isn't necessarily full of the trappings of what we envisage success to be. So if we are all slamming each other down 
in order to generate our version of success, you get to the end of that. Is that a life well lived? And I would argue that the answer would be no, because for me, a life well lived is leaving the world in a better place than you found it, not in a worse place than when you found it. And others might argue with me on that, but I, I, I don't see how. I'd love someone to come and try and argue with me. I don't me think that. anybody's ever argued that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, mm. but. I I really, honestly, truly believe that we all do well when we all do well. When I was at my lowest, I had a number of people show a great deal of kindness to me when they didn't need to, and that had a profound effect on my life. And kindness was always a core value of mine, but never one that I actively went out of my way to practice in terms of, you know, how can I be kind today? What does kindness look like for me and my community today? And by me doing that and embodying that in all areas of my work. So, and, and there's still a fair exchange. You know, people pay me in order to work with me. I'm not like out here trying to be, you know, Jesus doing everything for free and I'm a charity and it isn't that. But if I can embody kindness in everything that I do and help people understand that we all do well when we all do well, foster a community whereby collaboration can equal success and that fair energetic exchange can equal success, then actually people start to make inroads and reach their version of success much quicker than having six figures or seven figures or a holiday in the Maldives as their end goal. Because the thing that I've found, the more people that I work with, the more successful people that I work with, the more millionaires and billionaires that I know, the more celebrities that I know, the thing that I'm learning is there's nothing at the top of the rope. They're all climbing this rope to destination, I don't know what, because when they get there, they want to climb to something else. So if we create a community whereby we're just helping each other up and that's the goal, the destination is everywhere along the way. And that's really, I mean, the the core Mm. value of everything. I like that. The destination is everywhere along the way. Yeah. It's really important. Can I ask you a question you just prompted for me? Because women are interesting in, in our relationship with money. And you mm. made that statement, fair, energetic exchange. Yeah. Did you have to learn that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Because in order to be seen, one of my coping strategies was to overgive, was yeah. to validate myself by being, by giving so much to the people that were around me, to my partners, to my friends, to my work colleagues, giving so much that that giving was taken for granted and then was expected and then wasn't reciprocated. I was teaching people how to treat me. And actually I get more respect from holding boundaries with myself, including financial boundaries, including time boundaries. Actually people respect my time and my expertise more. Now I have those boundaries in place than I did prior. So I remember holding an event, very first event as I kind of came out as a motivational speaker. And at the end, there was the cell, right? So there's a call to action at the end. Mm. And I think it was something silly at the time. It was like £600 to work with me for 12 weeks. It was crackers because of how much I knew I was giving. And all the way through this sort of inverted commas pitch at the end, I was like, it, it made me yeah. feel awful because I didn't believe that there was a fair energetic exchange because I didn't feel like somebody would pay me that amount of money. And actually, when I started to hold strong and realise that actually – The outcome of people working with me is that they have more impact, more influence, they generate more income, then it's right and proper and fair that I charge accordingly. It took a little while to work it out. And this is from somebody who, when there was a knock at the door, when we were younger, it was, 
hide behind the settee because if there's a knock at the door, somebody's asking for money and it's money that we don't have. So there's a lot of sort of intrinsic stories that are built around money. They're making money and giving it away directly or feeling like you've got to pay for everything for everybody in order to validate yourself. People will only appreciate my success when I'm sharing with them the financial gains of that success. There's been a lot to unpick given how I've grown up. What do you think turned the corner of that? Because that's a really strong message for women. I'd love to even chip at. Yeah, surrounding myself with people who have made money in an ethical way who hold mm. on to that money and generate wealth for themselves. So really, it's really, my entire growth has been centered around surrounding myself with people that I aspire to be like. People like Lisa Johnson, for example. Um, you know, people like this... Uh, incredible Sam White, who's a leading light here in the UK in financial and insurance services. Emma Sale, who is a leading light in terms of uh, women's sexual liberation here in the UK. Surrounding myself with phenomenal, strong human beings who are further along in their journey than me. I've got some catching up to do, but I have enough fire and fuel in my jets to kind of keep up. I just need to learn from these people. And you'll often find that success leaves clues. So people who are successful, it's like being Hansel and Gretel. You've got to look for the clues. And often those people who find the, the kind people find themselves in a philanthropic space as well. They also may even want to mentor. So I go out and actively search for people who are further along in their journey than me, see how I can be of value in their space and by default end up receiving value from being around them and and that's not social climbing that's just no no that makes complete sense to me yeah. because I think that if you don't do that you're kind of actively stagnating correct yeah and I was finding that the people although I love them and intrinsically they know who I am they know me where they met me and my growth game is strong so it's really hard I think sometimes for my oldest friends to even understand what I do you know, my mum is a perfect example. My mum supports me and loves me and backs me 100%. If you, if you ask her, what do I do? She'll go, oh, she, she messes about on the internet a little bit. She talks to her mates on podcasts. I don't know. She does all right. She bought a nice house. Um, but like, if you take that for someone who's a little bit further away from you, not as close as maybe your mum or your, your parents or your siblings or what have you, and sometimes even those people that close to you don't understand or don't see your growth, it's really hard for them to keep up. And that's a realization in and of itself. So finding people who are running at the same pace, if not a little faster than you, mm. is I think essential for growth. Even in the healing world, even if it's somebody who has come through a significant amount of healing and you don't feel like you have, not to take from that person, but to learn from that person. Um, there's a guy on, uh, I follow him on Instagram, he's wonderful, called Nate Postlethwaite. And Stephen Bartlett's another great example of somebody whose growth game is really, really strong. Surround yourself with people whose growth game is strong and all of a sudden you're taking your growth to a whole gym that you didn't even know was there. I like that uh, phrase, whose growth game is strong. Yeah. Because if they're not growing, then they're not the model you want. No, exactly that. Do you want to learn from somebody who's stagnating? Do you want to learn from somebody who's actually receding in their thoughts, who's kind of, you know, retracting and, and moving away and shying away from difficult conversations. There are lots of conversations, Fanola, that are happening right now around the trans community, for example, around gender, around business, around economy, around all sorts of things. 
do I want to be surrounding myself with people who are stagnant in their thoughts around that? And the answer is absolutely categorically not. And those people will, as these conversations get bigger, will begin to show themselves. So again, it's, you know, how do we, you know, orchestrate and facilitate conversations for social impact and social growth as well? Who else has got a good growth game? Who else is also pragmatic and self-aware? Who can I have these conversations with? And that's what helps shift the dial for us as individuals, but also for us as a wider community. But it also means that we as a people get more involved in the world so that it's not these higher echelons making all of these decisions on our behalf, that we're actually, we're being the change we want to see. You know, that's another <laughs> statement that's made very regularly but hard to live. Yeah, yeah it really yeah. is. And sometimes you've got to sit on the spike or not. But that's, again, that's the other spike that you sit on. You either decide to come and get involved in conversations and growth or you choose not to. And the question, if we go back to self-awareness, is the question you've got to ask yourself is, if I get to the end of my life, where's the life well lived for me? Not for you, not for my mate, not for this person over here who's doing this particular thing, but for you, what's the life well lived? Is it actively getting involved in these conversations? Is it actively getting involved in your own growth? Or is it not? Is it just, you know what? I don't really want that much. What bring the kids up? I don't want any trouble. I, do you know what? Steady away from me is all good. And that's just as valid. You know, I'm not saying everyone's got to be a change maker or a thought leader or anything like that, but I implore as many people as possible to consider what is the life well lived for you? There's another phrase that someone we interviewed here, I interviewed here uh, previously, Marianne McGowan, and she said this idea of, because uh, she was about to climb Kilimanjaro and she said, choose your pain, Finola. Yeah. Yeah, pick your pain. And like, like you were saying before about, you know, being self-aware and making decisions over your empowerment and doing healing or being homeless, both are painful. I know where I know which I'd rather choose. Yeah. Tell us about what you do now. The beautiful oh. <laughs> work that you do. I just took started. I didn't know that Danny was doing a challenge last week and we were having our chat and I said, OK, I'll, I said, that sounds really interesting. I'm going to try it. Just phenomenal. Ah. Thank you like, so much. You made me work. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody comes to talk to me if they want to be comfortable. Like, I think we've definitely got it. But it was, was good. It was really good. And you gave me lots to think about and it's still with me. And I thank you for that. Oh, you're so welcome. And that's really my MO. So I have two hats that I wear. I'm wearing a hat today. For, uh, no, I don't think you guys can see me, but I'm, I'm indeed wearing a hat today. I'm wearing a beautiful <laughs> beanie hat handmade by my friend. Um, oh, but I have the two hats that I wear. Um, one is that I'm uh, an international celebrity public speaking coach now. I'd say it really quick because it sounds a little <laughs> bit, it sounds a little bit like I'm being a bit of a big head, but it's exactly what I do. I help people all over the world, whether they're just starting out in business or whether they are multi-billionaires, speak about what their missions are so that they can reach more people, have more impact, make more money, do all that sort of stuff. So that is what I would describe as, even though it's definitely not my muggle job. That's the job that I do day on day. That's what generates me the income that feeds my kids, that pays my mortgage. And I have been blessed to have been able to grow a community that really digs on that, that works with me in that capacity, that allows themselves to become gloriously uncomfortable with me, like just like you did last week for another part of the boot camp that I ran in my group. Um, and the other hat that I wear is 
the Fly Anyway Foundation. And the Fly Anyway Foundation is uh, a foundation that I set up to help people who've experienced domestic abuse fly anyway. So there's, there's this quote from the bee movie that aerodynamically bees shouldn't be able to fly. Their fat little bodies shouldn't be lifted off the grounds. Their wings are too small, but the bee didn't get the memo. The bee flies anyway, because bees mm. don't care what humans think is impossible. And I, after I'd sort of come through the other side of all of the stuff that I'd experienced, saw this quote and I clutched my pearls. I was like, that's what I want to help people to do, to fly anyway. So our service users or business builders come to the Flying Away Foundation. It's accessible online. Um, they share with us what their business plans are and we help them implement them by plugging them into this huge talent pool of um, products, goods and services. So it might be them. They might need an accountant or they might need a website building or they might want to learn about podcasting or they might want to learn um, marketing or social media. So what we'll do is we'll plug them into business professionals so that they can learn what they need to learn in order for them to fly anyway. So we'll help them with those real practical business setup uh, situations. And there's a five-year plan for that. So at the minute, we're at business building. The next phase is uh, employability because th there are lots of barriers to employment once you've experienced trauma. So helping people through that. Then it'll be post-crisis support to prevent the cycle of abuse happening again. Then actual crisis support and eventually refuge and rehoming. Um, and that's been, we've been in service now. We started 18 months ago. We've been in service now. Our first five business builders have just released their businesses into the world. Um, and, and we grow from there. That's amazing. You must be so proud. I don't know if proud is the right word. I'm grateful. Or humbled. I'm grateful. Yeah, grateful. yeah I'm just, I'm so grateful that I get to do what I do. I was I took my youngest to school the other day and there was these two mums that were walking just in front of me for Nola and, and one of them said to the other, oh, what have you got planned today? And the woman just tutted and she went, oh, you know, same old, same old. You've got it to do, haven't you? And I was walking behind him going, what do you mean you've got it to do? Like, you get to do these things. Like, we get to live. We get to have this life and... I get to choose. And I know some people aren't in that, you know, really quite luxurious position of choosing what you do day on day. But actually, if you boil it back, yeah, you do. If you're in a job that you don't like, you can actively choose to take steps to not be in that situation. You can actively choose steps to be in an alternative situation. You don't have to do anything within reason. And that's not me sort of like sort of whitewashing the situation or different privileges bring out different opportunities and all of that sort of thing. But actually, if we really do boil it down, I much prefer to think about what I get to do instead of what I have to do. And then because I get to do it, the things that I have to do get done anyway. Wonderful. For what I would love if it was possible, do you have an exercise? Because you had this wonderful thing when I first saw you. You had this idea of... Um, a framework that you can uh, divert from yeah. or in, in all different types of speaking. And the one that you did with us was a TEDx, but I think you have other ways of looking at things. Is there something that you can leave people with today? Absolutely. Oh, I've got a really cool. good exercise. I think, right, and I think this exercise you can use right the way across your, your life and your business. So when it comes to speaking, one of the things that we have to do, whether we like it or not, is introduce ourselves. And I think that's always one of the, the things that is most daunting 
about serving up to people like, oh, how do I introduce myself? What do I even tell them that I do? What if they don't like what I do? What if I'm, what if they think I'm stupid if I say I do this? And we go to these networking meetings if you're a business owner. And I like to, I like to call it the Mexican wave of shit. So what happens? (laughs) So you go to these networking events and over this rubbish cup of coffee, you'll be made to make small talk. And then you'll sit down around these tables and then you'll get 60 seconds to prevent what to present, sorry, your elevator pitch. You've got to stand up and tell people about you. And it's actually the thing that we rehearse the least. And what we do is we sit there panicking, prickling under our arms and hyperventilating, waiting for this Mexican wave of shit to land on us, for us to stand up, say the thing, sit back down again, soaked in relief that the next person speaking, but you're not listening to the person after you, nor are you listening to the person before you. It feels like a bit of a pointless exercise. Now, the way I see it is if you prepare for that situation, you then don't have to think about you. You can concentrate on who you can help in the room. So I have a little structure and I don't know about you, Finola, but structures are a funny old thing for me. If I have too much, (laughs) well, I love structure within reason. If I Me have too. too much structure, it feels suffocating and overwhelming. But conversely and funnily, if I have no structure at all, it elicits the same feelings. I feel suffocated and overwhelmed by having no structure. So by having this concept of structures from which to deviate became very freeing for me. It gave me a framework that I could play with because I'm a creative, right? So I thought it'd be helpful today if I shared with you a structure from which to deviate so that you can introduce yourself incredibly every single time. And it's in four sections and it's called the vocal business card because we all know real business cards are the things that go to handbags to die. Um, so if you introduce yourself really well out loud, then hopefully someone in that room is going to be able to listen to that, identify themselves and come and have a conversation. So the first bit is I am. So you say you say your name, nice and easy. So I am Danny Wallace. And the next is, and I. And a lot of people make a fatal flaw at this particular point in time. Some people, particularly in the online space, I have to say, will often get really fruity around their language to sound better or more elevated than what it is that they actually do. And the problem that that elicits is it becomes a little bit confusing. And if it's not clear in the first 10, 15 seconds to somebody what it is that you do, they'll be too busy trying to work out what it is that you do instead of trying to work out ways to connect with you. So my name's Danny Wallace and I'm an international celebrity public speaking coach. This is what I do. It's my job. It's not, uh, I could introduce myself as the queen bee, which I do. And there's a caveat that I will add on to this. If you do, if you do want to use flowery fruity language, then go in, but make sure that somewhere quite quick, you're really clear on what it is that you do. The next section is I help. And with the I help statement, what you're allowing is that person in the room to identify themselves instead of being hunted. So you'll get people that stand up, introduce themselves and say, I'm looking for, in my case, I'm looking for people who want help with their public speaking. They might not know. They might not know that's what they need help with. So I help particularly people from marginalized communities, marginalized genders, women, um, members of the LGBTQ plus community, members of the black community and so on, take up space in the world where they might not have normally by using their superpower hidden in plain sight, their voice by speaking about their mission and their message. So that helps the person identify themselves. All right, okay, so I'm from a marginalized community or it might ruffle the straight white male. It might go, oh, why does she not want to work with me? And I'm here for that conversation and I definitely work with straight white men. We need lots more good men. We need more good men in the world. 
and we need them to identify themselves loudly and clearly and be in allyship with us. So that's not a, a man-hating feminist statement, but there's also a recognition within that statement that not as many as I would like, certainly, or as many as the world needs, people from marginalized communities take up space. So let's take up some more space. So it allows the person to identify who they are without feeling hunted. So I help. And the next bit is so that, and that's the magic statement. It's the transformation that they're going to experience after hanging out with you in a professional capacity. So you hang out with me in a professional capacity, you will make more money. You will have more impact. You will have more influence. And so if that is something that people want to garner for themselves, all of a sudden I become a little bit delicious to them. Well, yeah, I want to make more money and have more impact and influence more people. I definitely do. Right. Well, I'm going to help you do it. Brilliant. So they've identified themselves and the transformation that they want without me going, I want to help people do public speaking because all of a sudden you're just selling. It's a bit better. (laughs) (laughs) So, so break it down again. It's I am and I, I help so that if you want to use fruity language on the top end, so I'm Danny Wallace and I'm the queen bee, you're going to need to attach on a, so what does this actually mean? Because otherwise people are going to get a little bit confused. So if you are going to be flowery and hyperbolic, fine, but make sure you explain yourself. Powerful. No, thanks. Yeah. What a great way to leave this. Thank you so much, Danny. It has been a gift and a pleasure. Uh, I love that we leave on an introduction as well. I, I, <laughs> I like to do things back to front and I'm, I'm delighted we got to do it that way. Finola, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I want them all practicing that now. <laughs> and where can they find out more about your wonderful work? Uh, you can find me across the socials at the Queen Bee Danny, all one word. That's on Instagram, it's on TikTok, it's on the Facebook, it's on LinkedIn, or you can check my website out, I am the Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, you belter. <laughs> <laughs> Never been called that before. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that episode. And if you'd like to find out more about Danny, look her up on LinkedIn or check out www.iamthequeenbee.co.uk. And if you love listening to this podcast, please leave a five star review in Apple Podcasts and leave a comment. It helps me understand what's working and encourages others to take a listen, which would mean the world to me. I'll be back next week with another great guest. And until then, take care. <laughs>